I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. W. Kamau Bell was one of our very first guests on this podcast all the way back in the spring of 2019. But the second I heard about his latest project, I knew we had to have him back. Bill Cosby had been one of my heroes. I'm a black man, stand-up comic. I was born in the 70s. But this... More trouble for Bill Cosby. The accusations just keep coming in. This was complicated. How do we talk about Bill Cosby? Uh -uh. It's complex, Kamal, you know? Bill Cosby was our teacher. Center of morality all throughout his career. Made my grandmother laugh, made everybody in the house laugh. You can't speak about black America in the 20th century and not talk about Bill Cosby. Thank you. This is The Last Laugh. I'm Matt Wilstein from The Daily Beast, and that was just a small taste of We Need to Talk About Cosby. W. Kamau Bell's new unflinching four-part documentary series about the life and legacy of Bill Cosby premiered at Sundance last week, and will be rolling out every Sunday night on Showtime over the next few weeks. And let me tell you, it is not to be missed. Kamau is one of the most simultaneously thoughtful and provocative comedians I know, and there really was no one better to handle this massive undertaking. We really get into everything in this episode, from why Kamau wanted to tackle this subject in the first place, to the many obstacles he faced along the way, to how he feels now about the man who was once his favorite comedian. This may not be our funniest episode ever, but it is a vitally important one. Here's me with W. Kamau Bell. Well, Kamau, welcome back to the show. Um, I'm so happy to have you back on, um, especially for this project. I was just kind of, you know, I saw you announce it just, I think it was like a few weeks ago on social media, and I was immediately, you know, really, really excited to see it. Now I've seen it um, and was really blown away by the entire thing. So I'm I'm just, first of all, congrats on this this incredible project. Thanks. I mean, it's sort of a... You know, a lot of people worked really hard on this. A lot of a lot of incredible people sat down and talked to us. I have to be honest, it still feels weird to hear people say congrats, considering what it's about. <laughs> yeah, considering the <laughs> subject matter. But yeah, it's, it's yeah. an achievement, no matter what. It is, I no, mean, I, it is certain. That's why I want to say it is definitely an achievement. But, uh, I, you know, I just I, it's not a superhero movie. Exactly. Um, so we're talking basically right after the, the Sundance premiere. I don't know. you Was it all virtual? You didn't actually uh, get to... Do no, the yeah. whole Sundance thing. <laughs> Everybody's right? Sundance was in their house or wherever, or, or where, or wherever they wanted to be for it. But it was not. We were not all together in Utah, so yeah, it was virtual. And then, as people are hearing this, I believe the first episode will have just premiered on Showtime. So yeah, I mean, it's just it's a, it's kind of a crazy moment for you. So how are you feeling? Uh, I mean, I I will give myself credit for this. I uh, I'm a big catastrophizer. Uh, if that's <laughs> like, I think of like all, you know, I learned from the movie ghost dog was with, uh, Forrest Whitaker that you have to imagine your worst defeat. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I was prepared for it to be, a uh, you know, I, I understand that it's divisive just by nature, but also it's not, I don't think when you watch it, it is as divisive as you think it might be, but, uh, while it still holds a very strong viewpoint, but you know, it's just, uh, I know the people who are the most the fiercest critics of it, I was always sure, were people who were never going to watch it. So, you know, that's where I'm, I'm, I feel like I see a lot of people who love it and a lot of people who hate it, who I'm very clear haven't seen it. Yeah. Well, as we're talking, no one's really, very few people have gotten a chance to see it. So anyone sort of coming at you on social media has pretty much not seen it. Yeah. And I can, and to be clear, I, you can watch it and hate it. That's, I accept that. But it's just the idea that like I can, from a lot of people, like I was just always aware very from when we were working on this, that the people who hate it the most, are the ones who, never, who are never going to watch it. Yeah. I mean, it seems like you already are receiving some backlash because you've put out some, you know, tweets and you wrote an essay um, in Time Magazine kind of addressing some of the 
the feedback that you've gotten. So what, what has that been like for you to already be getting some, some people sort of questioning why this film needs to exist? I mean, it's funny. I mean, I think the, 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 I was in the time magazine thing. It was like that, those thoughts were in my head, no matter if anybody had ever seen it. Like those were sort of like, just like to answer the question, why, uh, one of my good friends who works on United Shades of America, comedian Dwayne Kennedy, we've been friends for years. He kept asking me while we were working on United Shades this season, why, why did you do this? <laughs> some of it was like, but he was actually like, you know, you're going to ask that question. So be prepared. So I've been thinking about that a lot because I think to be honest, I was doing it before I even asked myself why it just felt like what I was supposed to do. But yeah, I saw what Dream Hampton went through with surviving R. Kelly. Uh, which is not, and, and, and R. Kelly was nobody's hero. I mean, people loved it, love or loved his music, depending on who you are, but he wasn't a cultural icon, a, a multi-generational cultural icon for black people. So, and they got death threats and I had to shut down screening. So I was prepared for it. It just doesn't, you know, and also, you know, doesn't make it fun. I'm not that, I'm not that guy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you wrote in the essay in time that you worried that this could be the end of your career why why were you sort of going down that road of something that it could be just is that part of the catastrophizing i mean hey, yeah to be fair matt i'm still worried <laughs> the worry has not gone away yeah not, i don't feel like i'm out of the woods yet no so i'm still like in a position of like you know you just you know again it's not a superhero movie so even if you love it it doesn't mean that you're like <laughs> want to see more from that guy. I don't know. You know, like I think it's just I, I feel that I'm proud of the work overall, but I just knew that it was like, you know, Cosby is still a powerful figure in pop culture, even if he's not as powerful as he was when he was on when the Cosby show was around. And people who even believe, like I believe, that he sexually assaulted and raped women sort of publicly want to be looked at as either on his side or neutral, you know? Or not like, or like I'm, so I just know it's like, it, you know, it may not be the best look to be seen with me. I don't know. I don't know. Again, like, this is just like, you know, I'm also the black guy who hung out with the clan. You know what I mean? Like, it's just like, <laughs> it's just like the choices I make are not like, I should have been like Kevin Hart and chose hang out with Dwayne the Rock Johnson. That should have been my choice, but I didn't. <laughs> yeah, no. that's not your, that's not your style. I mean, I, I would love to hang out with all of them, but this may, this gets me, this probably gets me further away from that is all right, I'm saying. Right. Um, so let's talk about Bill Cosby and your, you know, relationship to him first as a comedian, you know, you say in the film, I'm a child of Bill Cosby. What was the first time that you encountered his comedy and, and what did it mean to you growing up? Uh, I mean, I, like I was born in the early seventies, so I don't ever remember a time when there wasn't a Bill Cosby in my life, you know, and that's through, through to today. Uh, so, and especially, and, and I don't ever remember a time when he wasn't a significant figure. He wasn't as big as he would get when he became Cliff Huxtable, but you know, in the seventies, he was still Bill Cosby. And he had like, I didn't know that all that he, how historic he was because of I spy, but I just sort of like turned on the TV. So I watched fat Albert, the Cosby kids, like any other Saturday morning cartoon. I wasn't aware how revolutionary it was. I wasn't aware that Bill Cosby was even the creator of it and did the voices. I knew he was the host of one of my favorite cartoons. And then he also was just then a part of like children's TV, like we say in the doc, like, you know, I, I saw him on the electric company. I saw him on picture pages. He was just sort of everywhere I was looking, he was there. And this is also, you have to remember a very different media landscape where there was four channels, maybe five, you know? So as a kid, there's the certain, you're, you're watching Captain Kangaroo, you're watching the electric company, you're watching Saturday morning cartoons, and he's in all those spaces. Uh, and then I also was aware that he was an actor that adults went to see, but it wasn't, that wasn't my thing. And then you know, I have very, I have very vivid memories of seeing Bill Cosby himself. We rented the videotape, one of the first videotapes I ever rented. And even as a new stand-up comedy fan, big Saturday Night Live fan, I was like, this is different. This is different and better than the other stuff I've seen. Yeah. I mean, how do you feel like he influenced you as a stand-up comedian? I mean, the funny thing is, is by the time I got to start doing stand-up, I wouldn't have mentioned Bill Cosby as like some sort of creative influence because I was in my early 20s and I wasn't like trying to, you know, I wasn't. Yeah, I wasn't it wasn't the cool to, reference. <laughs> wasn't, I mean, yeah, I, I definitely started in the age of Bill Hicks was the reference. You know, like that was the, that was the, who, who are your biggest influences? Uh, so not that he was everybody's, but that was a generation of comedians where we missed him, but wanted to be him, you know? Uh, so yeah, I mean, I think... The thing that I've always been aware of with Cosby, and this is the thing that I, th I thought I had no access to, but then later in my career, as you get more confidence, you have more access to, is just the ability to hold the audience's attention and tell a story. And to not have to have it, it can be funny all the way through, but you can, but if the story's good enough, you can keep their attention. Now, 
this is the part that I think is also so interesting. This, those skills he has are not skills many other comedians have. Like they, you know, that's it's a very rare, a rare gift, I would say, and it's also a gift that I think translates off stage, holding people's attention. Mm-hmm. You think that played into the other parts of his life and his crimes? I mean, you know, it's funny. I want to, I've said this a couple of times. I've said this before, but I think you can, as a comedy fan, speak to this. Not all comedians are built the same. Not all comedians are like, you know, even though we sort of all do the same thing. But, like, there are some comedians where it isn't about what they say. Their presence is so overwhelming, people just want to stare at them. You know, people just want to be with them. People just want to, like, hang out with them after the show. And that's not true of every comedian that we know. Like, people and it's a, And it doesn't mean they're all using their powers the way Bill Cosby did, but I think that's a part of it. I think, and it's, you know, it's true of other people outside of comedy. Like, it's true of some actors. Like, some, you know, I remember Bob Costas years ago said, if Michael Jordan walks into a room and you don't know who he is, you can just tell this guy's important. You know, so I think there's something that he, Bill Cosby has, that I recognize because I've seen it in other comedians. Yeah, it's sort of a charisma or a, a certain, you know, aspect that, that just makes people want to engage with them and listen to them no matter what they're saying. Yeah, and it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean, yeah, and it's not, and it's, even comics know it's rare. Like, it's not something that every comic has. Yeah. Did you ever meet him in, in the years as doing show business? And No, but I mean, like I said, by the time I got sort of going, he was already not, he was not around. And I, I heard a lot of, he wasn't a, a comic who was ever around the clubs of the 80s and 90s. He was well yeah, he past wasn't hanging out yeah no and he was not the he was not like carlin or Pryor where they were doing sets at the club you know where they you know so i think that so i saw him live twice you know that was the he you know he (laughs) the weirdest one was in was at south by southwest in a backyard that was there he was there to promote his new instagram account which tells you a lot about that point in history i must have missed that yeah, and he walked, he walked <laughs> past me. It was like, and this was the thing. It was so interesting about that. It was like probably 2013 before pre Hannibal's joke, and I posted the picture on Instagram of like or on on, on whatever Facebook. Like, I went and saw Bill Cosby just because it was such a weird backyard, Texas. He's 200 people. He's right yeah. there. <laughs> uh, and then under those comments, some people were like, were very like why would you post a picture of this rapist? Oh, wow. Yeah. And I, and I was like, Oh yeah, I forgot. I yeah. forgot. Cause that's where <laughs> Cause we no were one was then. talking about it then. Yeah. And it hadn't been sort of like, you hadn't been forced to reckon with it. And so that, but that, so yeah. And then I saw him at the, in Oakland one time with Kevin Avery. Yeah. Another comedian. So, you know, for me, I would say the, the Cosby show was really the thing. I mean, it, it actually, I realized watching your movie, I didn't, I didn't really think about how it premiered the year that I was born. Um, but then stayed on for several years after that. And so I was watching it as a, as a young kid. And I remember the finale being a really big deal and watching that. Um, what did moving into that phase of the, of his career, what did the Cosby show mean to you? I mean, I think it's, you know, you don't want to reduce things to ratings, but it's just a very big indicator of how big the show is. Like the highest rated episode had 65 million viewers. Yeah, that's insane. Which, yeah, only the Super Bowl is disappointed by 65 million viewers. (laughs) Like it's, that's how many that, that's how big that rating is. Like it is like, so you're talking about a show that like, as we say in the doc, once black people knew Bill Cosby had a show coming, we were like, okay, we we will support that. That is one of the things. There's a magazine called Jet Magazine, which I don't, it must not still do this, but in the back of Jet Magazine, it would tell you all the times black people would be on TV the, for the next <laughs> oh, week. Wow. And so, yeah, so we all knew. It's like, and you know, because that's how small it was even in the 80s. So... Uh, I, we, so we knew we were supporting it and it was sort of like, Oh, it's on NBC. Like, that's a big deal. Almost. We have to help him win, even though we don't know how to do There's no, <laughs> we probably don't even get the Nielsen boxes, but we were there. Uh, and then because Bill Cosby's very debut in show business is of a guy of a black man with crossover appeal, he crosses over in a way that nobody saw coming. Like, but he, he knows what he's doing. But at the same time, this is the part that I think was key. The show while it does not reflect the life of the average black family, which is, I say in the doc, who gives a shit on some level, it is black with a capital B before we were capitalizing the B in black. Um, you know, you in the in the movie, in the documentary, we see you show some of your interview subjects footage of him doing comedy, of him on The Cosby Show. And there's you, we kind of get to watch people not be able to help themselves enjoy it no matter what they think about Bill Cosby and knowing what he did. And it's such a powerful thing because it's, it's this really, you know, difficult thing to, to appreciate something still, 
from someone who's, you know, is, is such a, you know, horrible person. Um, is that why you wanted to do that to kind of show, you know, people engaging with yeah, his work I, in that I way? Found, I found with my, f- the, the, the only other thing I've directed was a documentary about Chris Rock, uh, on, on his bring the pain comedy special, uh, which 12 people saw, but it's very, very good. <laughs> uh, I really stand by that work too. And I, and early on I was like, Oh, I would like to watch Chris Rock, watch some of his bits from back in the day. And that, and then we would like to show them to other people. And so that worked so well that it felt like it was the same technique I wanted to bring over is that, cause I know as a comedian, it is different to, cause I've seen, I look at when I used to stand on stage and tell jokes, I would, you can look at people's face and see their individual reactions, even when they're not laughing. Like, is this joke going well is reflected in your face. Oh, you don't like that. I said that word that's reflected in your face. And so I know that like, even though, People might have heard those pieces before that, or they, a lot of those, they've all seen the Cosby show before that da, da, da. in that moment, they're connecting with something that is, that is out of their rational brain. And on top of that, you get to see their like instant response when it sort of hits them. Oh yeah. There's actually a, there's other, there's something else very quite serious. I have to th- contend with now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It reminded me in some ways of the OJ Simpson documentary where the, the whole beginning of it is really just setting up, you know, how great of an athlete what he was, which is something that a lot of people almost forget now. Yeah. No, I mean, absolutely. Like I, I mentioned Dream Hampton. The two touchstone documentaries for this for me are Dream Hampton's Surviving R. Kelly and uh, O.J. Simpson Made in America by Ezra Edelman. Because I, I just think the, the, the Surviving R. Kelly, I wouldn't say is rewatchable in the same way. I mean, it is, it is important. And, it was, and I understand why it was made that way. She was, make, she was like, there's an active criminal out on the loose. We need to, your help catching him. Uh, and so I, I, it's, that film was about like, the thing I got from that film was like, let the survivors talk, let them talk. And then I think the thing I got from, um, made in America is like, there's a moment in that film about 20 minutes in, and I've watched this film several times where they are, they've, Ezra has earned our trust enough that he can just show us clips of OJ Simpson breaking tackles in college football. And you're just like, man, he was fast. Like he's, he's, he is like, yeah. Ezra has <laughs> laid the groundwork well enough that you're not like, how are you going to expect me to watch this? What many of us believe double murderer, uh, break tackles in when he was in college. Why would you expect I would watch that? But Ezra has earned our trust. And so that is what I think in this doc. It's like, I have to always re- earn your trust to keep watching. Even if you're coming from one, even if the side, even the thing you want to see is not the thing you're watching now or the thing that you're, that you're worried about seeing, you know, is coming later. Speaking of the Cosby show, you know, you have so many great interview subjects in this film. I would imagine that you tried to get more people from the Cosby show to, to talk to you um, from the cast of the Cosby show. Is that true? And, and why do you think they have been so hesitant of all people to criticize him, you know, over the past several years? I mean, I, so, yeah, I would say just generally the stack of no's from people we asked next <laughs> to the stack of yeses, the no's is a skyscraper <laughs> and the yes is a That's six That's how it flat. often works, right? Yeah, yeah. But I mean, it's like, you know, it's it's just... Often the no's are no because of scheduling or because yeah, of like, like, you know, that, yeah. yeah, no, there was, <laughs> it was, you know, like, believe me, as someone who called, who was a part of calling people up and say, do you want to talk about Chris Rock? Those, those no, the, the, I don't know if the no's are dwarfed by the yeses, but it ain't like, you know, it was, and the no's a lot of times were like, I'm just not free that, you know, so yeah, so it was, I, I know what it's like when you're like, and also having United, United Shades for all these years, like how to, like what the, what the success rate is. But so I would say this, that the, I think they don't want to engage in this for the same reason that a lot of people don't want to engage with this. There's it's divisive, no matter how nuanced you try to be, as I'm finding out right now. So I just think there's just no way to go there. This doc is trying to go look at this good thing. Now look at this bad thing. And can we learn something between these things? Can we? And and I, I think that's really hard to I think a lot of people feel like that's just really hard to do. And it is it is. And and. A lot of people are already on the record in whatever the way, way they want to be on the record. So I don't think they see why would I go down this this divisive road again if generally my fan base isn't thinking about it right now. If yeah, I can just keep they don't my want to life, open up that that window again. Yeah. Why would I? And I and I be clear. I don't blame these people after what I've seen, you know, and after and after what I and after what I've heard the survivors went through. I don't, you know, I would have loved, and also I want to be this too, and I won't say any names. I had some incredible conversations. And some hour long no's. It, it not really. I mean, I think it's like. I mean, it's it's just you know not real. I mean, I think it's like 
it's funny that the no that it is just the the non response to me is tougher than the hour long conversation that says no. Yeah, yeah. Like but, I just think, yeah. But I, I, I could imagine it's tough to speak to someone for an hour and be like, oh, I really wish that could be in this documentary. <laughs> you know, but I I trust that I they. I mean, I, I, well, here's the thing. Yes, it is then rough to go back to like the team and go, we didn't get these people. <laughs> that's the part that's because then you see the look in the editor's faces like, but what am I going to use to, like, <laughs> like, what am I, <laughs> you know, and it's rough because you think of it like, and I also think it's rough in the standpoint of like, I, the more people said no, of the more people, like the kind of people you would expect to be in something like this, the more they said no, the more I realized that I was going to take up more space in this that I wasn't really thinking about when I started it. Like, I thought I would be among the voices. And then at some point it became, because so many people had declined or we did, or we decided not to reach out to at some point, it was like, oh, now I'm basically I'm the voice that leads you through, which was not how I envisioned this. I really I really pictured making it more like O.J. Simpson made in America, where you hear Ezra's voice a couple times, but it's not. There, nobody walks out of that and goes, I know what Ezra Edelman thinks about O.J. Simpson. You just you sort of go out and walk out and know what the film thinks about O.J. Simpson. Were there other people besides, you know, the uh, the Cosby show cast maybe that you that you really, really wanted to to be in it and just and couldn't or wouldn't? For, I mean, for everybody that you think you would want to see in here. Somebody, like, like, I say that everybody who is like the people you kind of would go, the cultural commentators, the stand up comics, the and I just don't want to name them by name because I don't think it is about shaming them. And I think it's really about if they want to say the if they want to speak out on it with some Somebody ask them, please feel free. But it's like, it's just, I get it in an even more profound way now that I've gone, that I'm gone through it and going through it than I did before. So, you know, it's like, you know, some people have even said like, what, so what, I can't, you know, basically like almost like expecting like more like episode five or a second yeah, season something or something. Else it's is like, happen, yeah. I mean, I just feel like I, I, this is where I want to engage with it with. I'm not even really interested in turning it into a career move like it, of this, you know, like I'm not interested in like continue. This is, this is how I am reckoning with it currently. And that, and that's, that's enough for me. Yeah. Um, for me watching it, the really striking narrative that, that went through the entire thing is the way Bill Cosby made himself into a trusted figure, um, public figure. He became a, uh, a doctor by getting his, that degree, which you throw into question whether he actually wrote his dissertation. I mean, we just do, we just do what many yeah. people before us have done. <laughs> um, like, <laughs> you know, he became America's yeah. dad on the Cosby show. He's playing in OBGYN and having his office in his basement where, you know, women are coming to him. Um, all these things that he did to and being on children's shows so that he would be, you know, a friendly figure. Um, was that something that you kind of had in mind? Is something you wanted to thread through it, or did that develop through the the process? Or you know, when we started this, it was uh, like the first sort of like creative work on it. It was me and three people in a conference room in Oakland, which is where all the revolutions come, all the greatest projects come from. Conference rooms in Oakland, Black Panthers, the Black Panther movie. Uh, so. And one of the people who was in that room was named Jamila King, who's a journalist who at the time was with Mother Jones and is now with BuzzFeed. And so there was always a sense of like, and she was there because I wanted like that kind of journalism brain. There's always a sense of like, like what, why, why and what, <laughs> like, what are we saying? Why? And like, sort of like, as we started to piece together hit the timeline of his life and the timeline of his career and the timeline of the assaults, you start, things start to emerge. I mean, it feels very much like the, like the movie A Beautiful Mind, <laughs> like you know, we're just yeah, like, the pieces are coming together. Yeah, you start to see things, and you start to see breadcrumbs, and you also start to go. You and you also start to read more into it, and you go, and just the idea that like that you, it's not a, like it's not a, it's not an accident that Cliff Huxtable and he Cliff Huxtable and Bill Cosby wore the same sweaters, like as as Kieran Amayo says it. He is trying to blur that line, and he, you know, some actors who are on sitcoms don't want to actually don't want you to actually think they're the character you know jerry seinfeld doesn't even want you to think he's jerry seinfeld (laughs) you know but yeah he really was very it was very clear that he was that there was a calculation there of like no 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 cliff i mean and by all rights cliff huxtable should have been america's dad not bill cosby Mm -hmm. yeah but he 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 didn't want it to he wanted to be america's dad so he wanted to gain people's trust i think i believe he wanted that power yeah. And then, so there's that, which he's doing, which seemingly actively. And then there's this flip side where he's kind of telling on himself throughout his work, starting with the Spanish fly bit from his stand-up, and then the barbecue sauce scene from the Cosby show. Well, uh, it certainly is nice to see them work things out for themselves. 
They haven't worked anything out for themselves. It's my barbecue sauce. Your barbecue sauce. My barbecue sauce. Haven't you ever noticed after people have some of my barbecue sauce, after a while when it kicks in, they get all huggy-buggy? Oh, stop. I'm dead serious. <laughs> Haven't you ever noticed that after one of my barbecues and they have the sauce, people want to get right home? <laughs> Let me tell you something else. I got a cup of it up on the night table. And I'm <laughs> what did you learn about that in terms of why do you think he was doing that and sort of brazenly talking about this stuff in his work. You know, uh, I think that, you know, the great thing about this is there's so many great, like, conversations I have with these people that we recorded, the the interviews. I I don't call them interviews because they really weren't conversations, but, like, I I think Cliff Nesterhoff, the the incredible comedy historian, like, I mean, just... (laughs) The stuff that guy knows. (laughs) Yeah, the stuff that guy knows. And also, he just recently went through a whole thing where he was showing people that, like, comics from, like, the 40s and 50s were complaining about cancel culture. (laughs) Like, So Cliff was like, but he said... The idea of like, uh, you know, a, a narcissist doesn't think they're doing anything wrong. If they, if they did it, then it's right. I don't know if I'm not, I can't diagnose anybody. That's not what I, but the idea that like, I just don't think, I think on some level, they felt like if I'm doing it, it's right. Like I don't, you know, and, and we don't get into the deep level of his personal psychology. We just, but we do have uh, therapists and, and people in the, and the, the psychologists in there who are talking about, this is how a person like this could, would commit their predation. Yeah. Yeah. That the, I knew about the Spanish fly thing more than the, the barbecue sauce. I didn't, re- I mean, I'd obviously seen it, the, the barbecue sauce thing from Cosby show, which I guess runs through several different episodes. Um, but had totally blocked that out. Didn't, you know, I don't think it registered with me as a kid watching it. Um, is that, was that your experience? I mean, yeah, can I, you I kind of see I, these things again? I know I've seen that and I have some memory of the barbecue sauce thing. Like, I, but yeah, I, I, a hundred percent, I saw it. There's no way I didn't see it. And I didn't, I didn't notice anything. And I was, I was older than you. So I was tw- 11, 12, 13 or so like, you know, like, it was like, so yeah, I mean, it's the same thing with the, which the thing we, the, and this is one of the last ads to the series was the. The thing about Bill Cosby talks to your kids about drugs. Oh yeah, that was very the, weird. Yeah, the comedy album he recorded in the in the '70s, where it's him, and clearly it's not a he's not it's not a formed anything. It's just him riffing with kids talking about what drugs do to you. Yeah, and uppers and downers, and and he acts yeah. out what an upper what a down what a downer does to you, and you're just like, dude, <laughs> like, wouldn't you want to steer clear of all this stuff? And he won a Grammy for that. And it's not a very good album. (laughs) (laughs) Coming up, Kamau talks about whether he's able to separate the art from the artist. Or to put it another way, is he a Seinfeld or a Colbert? When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. If you're enjoying this episode and want to hear more, please make sure you are following The Last Laugh wherever you get your podcasts. By subscribing to The Last Laugh, you can listen to our original conversation with W. Kamau Bell about his own comedy career, and everything else from our free archive. And you'll be the first to hear new episodes when they drop every Tuesday. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know how much you love the show and who you want to hear next. 
Now, back to W. Kamau Bell. On your show, United Shades of America, you've obviously have a lot of difficult conversations, um, you know, but I would imagine that nothing really compares to these. Uh, can you talk about that a little bit and what, what that was like to sit down with these women and hear their stories and kind of you have to get you have to get them to tell their stories in, in a way that they might not want to. And that's that's hard. Well, I mean, the first thing, the first, it starts with this, like, again, there, you know, there's over 60 survivors that we know about. We didn't interview most of them, obviously. And, 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 and we asked more than who said yes. I think first it starts with somebody wanting to buy into this project because they've all done a lot of Cosby projects, podcasts, you know, TV documentaries, they've all done a lot of things. So, and I think for the most part, they're all sort of at the place of like, I feel like I've done enough unless, and then, you know, or like I've, I've done my time with that, you know especially with him out of prison. So I think there's a sense of like, why would I do another one of these things? Uh, and then, and then if you say, and if they are interested at all, then you have to say, okay, which we made clear, it's not just about the assault. We're also going to talk about his career, which means there are also going to be people in here talking about him from a good perspective or good work he did. And you, do you want to be a part of that specifically? Because that's something that's a big ask. Because well, yeah, not you don't want just, them to then see see it and say, "Wait, what's all this positive stuff doing in here?" Yes, and I'm still nervous about that. And but I've, I think so far, I know most of them have seen it and have appreciated it. So like, because I think we were very clear about that. But yeah, you don't want them to feel like that they got. And I think there was. I think some of them thought we were trying. I think there was. And I would. Some of them, I think. Through the ones who said no, didn't didn't trust us, and maybe thought we were trying to pull a fast one, you know. Like so, I and I accept that. <laughs> like I accept like we're, it's Hollywood calling, you know. Um, so so then once you get them, and but one of the things that that encouraged some of them to do it is because they knew my work from United States of America. Mm-hmm. So they that trusted sort of you like, in that sense. They trusted. They were like trusted me in the sense of like I've seen him. I already like him having difficult conversations. So if somebody's going to do this, maybe it's going to be him. So I think that's the thing that really helped us is that <laughs> not helped me was me. <laughs> One of the things that helped me was me. Like the fact that like I had had this reputation. And so they also, I think they felt like they could be vulnerable. And I, let me be clear. And this is what I've learned from United Shades. You don't open the conversation and tell me what happened that night. You know, these are two hour, some hour long, two hour, sometimes over two hour conversations where, and what we learned quickly, Victoria Valentino was our first interview. It was like, the more you talk about their lives and who they were and who they were before and how they grew up, the more you get pieces of the bigger – the story starts to come together more than just one woman talking to Bill Cosby or one woman having an interaction with Bill Cosby. And you start to see them as three-dimensional people, which was always – we were very clear we had to include as much of that as we could and allow them to be experts in their field. So I think by the time you get to the their connection to Bill Cosby – it's already we've already sort of had a thing back and forth for a while like we've been it's we didn't just walk into the room cold like you would do on the news or something i really like how you address the you know the pushback on a lot of when this all started coming out just a few years ago was you know why didn't they talk about it at the time why why are we just why are you just talking about this decades later and i think the interviews the conversations that you have really give a lot of insight into why um, women don't necessarily talk about it or don't want to talk about these things publicly at the time. Um, was that, did it give you a better understanding of that even talking to them? For sure. Like I, to me, this was like, like a lot of the work I do, I'm actually, I'm asking these questions cause I want to know the answers cause I'm, cause I'm curious and I don't know. And, and I also, the work in the United States has taught me, you have to ask the answers to the questions, you know, the people at home have, like, even if you don't have them, you know, I always feel like they're the questions that you want to be sure to like, I know somebody, I know a huge percentage of people are going to be thinking something like this. Let me try to address that so that they can hear it from this person, you know? So I, yeah, for sure. So that was an example of like, I had some of those same questions, you know, when you first hear about this, it just all overwhelming. And I had some of those same questions of, and the answers are always so clear that you just, that you, that I accept that, that of course they're true. Like, you know, so I, there's no debate at that point. Like we as a country, do a horrible job at at dealing with people, women specifically, who've been sexually assaulted or raped, and we've been doing a horrible job since since before the country was since it all came together. You know, so like when you so it makes perfect sense to me that a woman who was raped by anybody, first of all, would be reluctant to tell the police or her community, and second, if that man is a as as powerful as Bill Cosby, it becomes even more. And they do tell people many times, and those people say, "Don't tell nobody." 
I do not believe that he ever wanted or intended to help me. I felt stupid. I felt naive. I felt ashamed. I felt angry. I had a lot of conflicting feelings about it. And since I thought I was the only one, since I felt exceedingly stupid for letting it happen, and since I was ashamed and took more responsibility for it than I should have, um, why, would you, why would you talk about it? Why? And also with his reputation the way it was and believing that no one would believe me if I did, why would I talk about it? You know, a lot of our conversations over the years have been about politics and, and comedy um, and sort of their intersection. I'd love to talk a little bit about Cosby's very complicated politics um, that we learn about in the in the series as well. Um, and I think the, the pound cake speech is this moment that that you highlight and, you know, gets a lot of uh, got a lot of attention at the time. Um, can you explain what the what the pound cake speech was and um, and why you wanted to, you know, talk about that in the, in this? Yeah. So, I mean, for me, the, the, when I think other people's Bill Cosby documentary would be different, specifically, I think a white person's Bill Cosby documentary might not even highlight, include the pound cake speech, depending upon what their perspective was that if you look, if you're going to talk to black people as old as my, I am or older, there are like sort of like segments of Bill Cosby's career. You know, like, So there's like, I spy Cosby kids, the Cosby show pound cake speech, rapist you know what i mean like there's sort <laughs> yeah. of like the pound cake speech is an era of his career and so i think that like the idea being that that it, even before we'd heard of the allegations and these stories there was a point of like bill cosby this is not the bill cosby i thought i knew and and yeah and the pound cake speech was a bill cosby gave a speech uh at the NAACP on, in 2004 is for the 50th anniversary of the historic Supreme Court su decision Brown versus the Board of Education uh th that was about integration and Bill Cosby I think the idea people thought was like Bill Cosby's gonna get up here and like be fun and funny and tell us we did a good job he wanted us to learn and we've we're learning you know but uh he did quite the opposite uh it's you know a screed a rant uh, a, a basically that was telling black people to pick up their pants, to pull up their pants. I mean, literally, I think quite literally it says that, but, and like makes fun of black moms, makes fun of black moms for not being better parents and giving their kids weird names. One of the weird names he chooses is Muhammad, you know, like, it's just like, and it's called the pound cake speech because one of the bits, I mean, it really feels like one of the biggest comedy specials of all time. One of the bits is him making fun of a, it makes fun of a black man who is shot in the back by police because the black man stole a piece of pound cake. And the big punchline is, well, what was he doing with the pound cake in his hand? I'm talking about these people who cry when their son is standing there in an orange suit. Where were you when he was two? Where were you when he was 12? Where were you when he was 18? And how come you don't know he had a pistol? These are not, these, these are not political criminals. These are people going around stealing Coca-Cola. People getting shot in the back of the head over a piece of pound cake. And then we all run out and we're outraged. Oh, the cops shouldn't have shot him. The hell was he doing with the pound cake in his hand? It becomes what I came to understand at that point, respectability politics, which is like you are responsible for your oppressor oppressing you. It, it, you should be able to do you should be able to lift yourself up by your bootstraps, even if you don't have boots or straps. But if you don't have them, that's your fault, too. Yeah, um, it because of the timing of it, because I know some of the allegations against him were kind of coming out, starting to come out around that time. Do you think there was any element of it that he was? using that as a distraction or trying to get attention, put, get attention on this instead of on that. I, I, I mean, this is like deep theorizing at this point. I, I doubt it. Cause I, what would, what I think he thought he was, I mean, he still doesn't seem to be affected by this in the way you would expect <laughs> yeah. somebody to be affected right. by this. Like, yeah. I think he was mad at black folks for not doing better. I think he, you know, first of all, every, you know, like as Dougie Doug says, sounds like every older black man I know, that's not a, it's not that that I that point of view is unique. That black people never heard it before. And to be clear, we talk about the doc. Some black people loved it. 
So it's not like it's just it's not like it's you know can't it's not not outside the pale, but it is for a lot of us. But like that's just not the guy we knew. If you'd always been that guy, we would have dealt with you as that guy. But you you said you loved us and that you that we could learn and that you you know you know it just I so it didn't it, you didn't always tell us it was our you know when Theo re- is revealed to have uh, dyslexia on a, a learning disability on the show, they are supportive of him. You know it, they don't blame him. Right. Yeah. Um, you kind of credit Hannibal Burris, the comedian, for putting both of those stories together, the respectability politics and the rape allegations. Um, and he's, and Hannibal's really credited by a lot of people for getting, for putting this story back on the, you know, front page of the internet. Even though that was not his plan. That was not (laughs) his goal. Yeah. Well, I know that because I mean, I, I, um, have tried to talk to him, um, about his own comedy and stuff. And I remember this is probably something I shouldn't say, but that, you know, the, one of the, the rules was you can talk to him, but don't ask him about Cosby. Yes. And I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, which, okay. Um, you know, he doesn't want it to define his career. Um, I would imagine you tried to talk to him as well for, for this. Yes. Hannibal's always made it clear that he would rather not talk about Cosby this like, and I think in some sense, I really respect him for it. He was not trying to make this a career move. You know, that, that he, I think there's a sense with him, like, please do with it what you will. <laughs> like, if you, you know, like, I just said this thing that was true. He doesn't regret it necessarily. Yeah, I don't. I, and I, can't, I certainly don't want to speak for Hannibal. But I think it's like, I think it's the idea being that, like, yeah, I said it. And boy, it blew up. But it's not like I was like, it's not the it's not I'm not going to go pitch a book about it. Like, which I think a lot of comics probably would have at that point. You know, it's, you yeah, know, so I capitalize think capitalize on it. In some yeah, way. he was not he was never trying to, like capitalize on it and he also was very clear that he wasn't the spokesperson for anything he was a comedian like i said like you know sort of taking on the sacred cow and in his hometown that's the fucking smuggest old black man public persona that i hate let's get some tea pull your pants up black people i was on tv in the 80s i can talk down to you because i had a successful sitcom yeah it was great women bill cosby so It did occur to me that comedians really don't like people filming things on cell phones at their shows, but that if no one had recorded that and put it out, I wonder how things would have played out differently. I mean, you know, it's like a lot of those things that, I mean, who knows what would happen? Because first of all, that was 2014 when we weren't really as sensitive to that, even that idea of people putting the, I mean, the the footage is comically uh, pixelated. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, you just have to trust us that it, this is a Hannibal Burris, but, uh, you know, but like, I mean, who knows? We've seen blog posts do things, you know what I mean? Like it's, I, I, maybe somebody writes a blog post that this is what Hannibal said last night, but then it's like, it, it certainly has a different, it may still open up the conversation, but yeah, I think that there was like a very like perfect storm element to that, that, that I can't imagine but, and also I think, it, yeah, that, like, I think even the fact that it was Hannibal and not a comedian like me, who's like sort of wants to speak truth to power, you know? And and also, I wouldn't have done the joke that way. So it's like, I think it's just, it is it's Hannibal's specific skill set in that, I think Philly being, a, the fact he was in Philly is a big part of it, and some cell phone footage, early days of YouTube. You know, I just think it was a lot of, it was a lot of perfect storm. It was a, it was a perfect storm. Do you remember seeing that footage when it came out in 2014 and what you, what you made of it at the time? Uh, yes, yeah. Yeah, I, what I meant was, I just was very clear, and I know Hannibal a little bit. I do not know him well, but I was very clear on like, Oh, he didn't want this to happen. <laughs> like, yeah. like, I was just like, <laughs> I was just like, I've really sort of felt not bad, not the right word, but I felt for him because I was like, this is going to be it. Like, the bigger it got, the more I was like, this is not what he. Had. This is he didn't sign up for this. So yeah, I just and you know, I mean, I, I always have to say this. Like, I'm not me and Hannibal. We're not close friends, but he is like literally did one of the nicest things anybody's ever done for me in my life. When my first daughter was born, I got a case of diapers out of nowhere from Hannibal. <laughs> I just people I don't know if people tell nice Hannibal stories often so that's yeah well I think whether he wants it or not he is he does get a lot of credit for busting the Cosby thing open and I think that's that's a good thing ultimately I feel again for him that he's gonna probably have to answer some questions because of this but I really tried to like wall off the space of like he did this thing this was not what he was trying to do this you know like I I really hope that he rolls with it 
Yeah. So we see in the documentary the moment where you find out that Cosby has been released from prison, which I think was on your last day of, of shooting. Yeah, it was supposed to be our last. It ended up not being our last day. Yeah. Was, yeah. So what happened? How did you find that out? And then how did it change you, you know, your, the film and your process. I mean, it's, <laughs> I was in the bathroom and I was checking my phone <laughs> and I got a text message from a comedian <laughs> who I've told, and he's, he said, it looks like your doc just got uh, a lot more interesting. And I was, you know, you're like, what? And then you go to the, I don't know if there was a link sent or anything, but you know, I just remember being on Twitter and being like, what, wait, what, wait, what? And it was that Cosby was uh, being released from prison that day. Like, not like in a couple weeks, but as right now. And we were in Philadelphia filming this documentary. So, I mean, the whole world sort of uh, stopped and sped up at the same time. Yeah. Did you, what, how did you feel like it was going to change the, the documentary and did it? I mean, yeah, it changed it. It changed it a lot because we, like, it was like, well, I mean, there's the line that we left in the dock of me being on the set, being like, and I don't know what this film is anymore. Like, I was just like, I don't know. Is it canceled? Is it coming out next week? Like, does that have to come out sooner? You know, like, is it, uh, you know, do, do we bury it? You know, like, because there's a lot of Cosby docs out there that have not seen the light of day for for various reasons. So I... I thought I didn't know what, and, be, and to be clear, I was also like, maybe that maybe it will be canceled because this has been harder than I thought it was going to be. And I knew it was going to be hard. And a lot of that also is because we were filming during COVID. So, or, and it's still during COVID, but we were yeah. filming during the, some of the beginnings of COVID. So yeah, it, 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 it didn't change as much as we thought it was in the moment. Cause in the moment you just feel like this is blows up the whole timeline. We got to start the whole thing over. But then you realize that it, the, the work, the bulk of the work is still the same. It's just the, it's really like the bookends that change. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you end the the series really with the debate over, you know, separating the art from the artist. Um, and you play this really, you know, illuminating clip of from the late show of Stephen Colbert and Jerry Seinfeld talking about this question. And Stephen Colbert basically says, I, I can't, you know, watch Bill Cosby anymore. And And Seinfeld's reaction is basically like, really? He seems like he doesn't, you know, is can't even understand that point of view. So as a kid, when you're saying, I, I want to do this, who, what did you th- who was the comedian for you? Was there well, a the person? comedian was Bill Cosby. Of course. Uh, and those albums. I had Very never Very funny fellow right, wonderfulness. Why is there air? Uh-huh. Greatest, uh, uh, um, uh, um, what's the word, body of work, mm-hmm. uh, I, th- I think, in comedy is his. Can you still listen to his comedy? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I grew up on his stuff. Like, I think he saved my life. Right. Because when I was a kid, I had, like, a tragedy in my life. But for the next two years, I listened to Bill Cosby albums Ah, every night before going to bed. I would hide the speaker under my pillow so my mom wouldn't hear that I was listening to Cosby every night. You could drop a needle anywhere on those albums, and yet I can't listen to it now. No. I just can't, can't. can't, can't separate it. You can't separate it. I can't. How do you think about this? I mean, what what side do you fall on in the in the Colbert versus Seinfeld <laughs> debate over, <laughs> over Bill Cosby? <laughs> That's funny to frame it that way. Can I moderate the Colbert versus Seinfeld debate? Uh, so I think there's more than those two sides. First of all, I think that like, and I think that like, and I also I, I realized that we we want, we purposely made sure that we people knew that clip was from twenty like whatever it was twenty seventeen. So it's like it's not a clip from yesterday. You know, uh, I'm sure Seinfeld has, <laughs> has different thoughts on this now, uh, but. So f- we I, we separate art from artists all the time, right? Yeah, we we especially music is the best place to see it. That you sort of go, this person is clearly horrible, and they don't have to be criminal to be horrible, but some of them are criminal. But I really like their music because I that was what I listened to in high school, or I really like I really like dancing to this song because I just like dancing to this song, and I just don't care for this four minutes. I'm not gonna. I'm just gonna let it go. So. Uh, yeah, so I think that we do it all the time. We just don't notice ourselves doing it. And we only it only becomes a problem for us when the person other people saying they don't want to mess with anymore is your person. And so I think the, the, the fact is, is that while we were making this doc, I found myself laughing again, smiling again, like studying Bill Cosby himself critically again. That's fine for me to do. What is not fine for me to do is expect that everybody wants to do that. So, like, there's no, I don't think there's any way I could make this doc and go, this is just a doc about how good Bill Cosby himself is. Right. And that's, yeah, and that's not what you now, did. Yeah. yeah. 
It's not what I did. But in the in the middle of this doc, I was like, I really want to tell you how good Bill Cosby himself is. Yeah. Well, yeah. So it's, yeah, I, think I mean, it's, that's that's the thing. I think it's. It, do you think it's easier? You think it's easier to do with music than comedy because comedy is so even more sort of personality driven, or you're really like the yeah, you're idea is that you're, the, you're you're engaging with the person. Yeah. There's a there's a there's a there's a a conceit in comedy which is not true that you're engaging with the person with that because to be quite clear. Jerry Seinfeld didn't want you to think he was Jerry Seinfeld. And he's also not the third Jerry Seinfeld who does stand up. You know, like there's just this, there's just this like way in which we, that we, that we believe the comic in a way that we think about that is telling us who, giving us a better example of who they are than the musician is. And also, I think there's also about what we allow for musicians because there's a part of this gets wrapped up in sex and drugs and rock and roll. So I think that's like, there's levels of this that where it's like, well, that's that if, 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 if a rock and roll, you know, if, if I was going to say rock and roller, like I'm 80 years old, but if, <laughs> like, but if, but if, if a rock band does something, we might go like, ha, 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 that if your, you know, coworker did at the office, you'd be like, Steve, you need to relax. Like, you know, so I think that like, you can't put the TV through the window here, Steve, you know? So I think that's the, we're always drawing those lines and we have different standards of behavior depending upon how, what our feeling is about that person or that profession. So I, I think that like, and also, this is the other thing. We are all going into our houses and taking in content all the time that we would not share with our coworkers. But we don't. We don't try. We don't try to make that a discussion. We don't try to like you know. We don't. We don't try to like go. You need to. We need to respect what I'm. And I'm not. Whatever. It can be whatever content you want. You need to respect the toenail clipping videos I watch when I go on YouTube. <laughs> like you know, it's just, we don't. We just sort of know that that's that's for me, and it doesn't necessarily have to represent my highest self when I'm doing it. Yeah, I think I think it's going to be a challenge for people watching this in some cases that you know, where like I said, even the people in the in the documentary who you, who you show the footage to, that it's hard not to appreciate some of this stuff because it's so nostalgic, it's so in our in our bones, you know. But I think that's I think that's okay if you're honest about the frame around what you're appreciating, or if you're honest about the other stuff that's in that picture. Like it's I think it's. It's, you know, there is incredible work on the Cosby show, like some top level comedy acting that, you know, Matt Williams, who was, who was a writer on the show, talks about like just the the moments and the ways in which the, and the writers were all it's like and it's it's I think personally, I think it's OK to, for it's OK for me to look at that and go look at the what they did here as long as I'm also reminded of what of what I have learned now, what he was doing behind the camera. Yeah. So I would, I would guess that's why that's part of why some of the other cast have conflicted feelings about all this stuff too, because it's been erased. I mean, it's, it, you can't, you can't really find it in the same way that you could before. I think some of that is overblown. That show went off the air in 1992. It is now, what is it? Is it, is it 30 years? A lot of shows from 30 years ago aren't still like flapping before our eyes anymore. So I think that's a part of it. Also, as we, and you know, bigger than that, all comedy eventually dies on the vine. You know, when I was a kid, if I turned on the TV, I couldn't not find an I Lucy rerun. I love Lucy. You know, like it was, that was the show that was like ubiquitous. It's you, it's not ubiquitous anymore. Now you can still go get it. And this is true of the Cosby show. True. You now you can still go get it places. If you want to do that, but it's but it was it was never going to be still the center of our public consciousness thirty years later. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, you know, you said that you are not going to be making a part five. You're not. This is not your new thing. Uh, you know, making documentaries about Bill Cosby. How do you follow a project like this? What are you What are you wanting to do now? That's maybe totally different from from what you've just done. I mean, the funny thing about this is, I was still working my day job. United Shades of America the whole time. Yeah, so it's still like, going. it's like, so it's, so I'm like, after this, I still, I'm shooting this week. <laughs> like, so it's like, so I think that like, I, 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 so I, it's funny. So I think of myself as like, I, there is this, I would just love to be, I love directing and I love, and I love these long form documentary projects. Like I was the asshole who wouldn't stop talking about the last dance in 2020. Yeah. So I <laughs> well, love that was, this. That was a lot of assholes. Yeah. Was, yeah no, and I, but I just want to be clear. <laughs> Some people may go, come out was probably not that guy. I was totally that guy working it into conversations when it didn't really have anything to do with anything. Uh, uh, I took it personally. So like, but the thing is, is that I, I, I love that style of filmmaking. I watch those films. I love these. I love investigate, like not investigated, but like cultural films about culture and how culture works. So I hope to do more and have started talking to people even before this came out. 
I was talking to people about doing more of this stuff because I think people saw United Shades and sort of assumed that I would be able to do this. So I'm I'm looking at I want to do more. Like you know I I like I look at you know I look at the careers of people who are documentary filmmakers who are high level and it's like that's 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 a way to go. Like I like that. Um, so the the first time you were on this podcast uh, a few years ago now we didn't have our final segment yet which is called the first laugh so I want to run through very quickly a couple of these uh, first um, maybe something uh, a little lighter since we've had such a serious conversation um, and the first question that I ask comedians is uh, the the first piece of comedy that made you laugh really hard as a kid and you know actually come to think of it maybe it was Bill Cosby but maybe it, maybe it was no, something it wasn't, else it wasn't. So, uh, I would say it was I would say it was uh you know, I can't point which thing. Saturday Night Live, like I was, I'm of, like I'm just, like I was a little kid watching Saturday Night Live. Yeah, like I, watching that, that first season. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, I'm like, I I've been saying it's been falling off since then. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's been like, all downhill since. Yeah. Then. It's, it's, people are like, after the, uh, you know, after the cast with Dana Carvey, it's been falling off. No, I've <laughs> I've been saying that since uh, since Chevy Chase left. <laughs> but so yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so I'd say uh, Saturday Night Live. Like, you know, I just have vivid memories of John Belushi. Like, I, okay, this is the one I can think of is John, they did a John Belushi commercial for uh, a new breakfast cereal, I think called Little Chocolate Donuts. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's a, that's a classic. And he was like, uh, <laughs> like talking about it as, it was like, if, if it was Cheerios, that made me laugh. And and the great, yeah, so that would say it's uh, Saturday Night Live. Do you remember the first time that you knew you were funny? Um, The first time. I knew I was funny. I mean, I always thought I was funny because I was an only child, and I and my mom laughed a lot. So like, I always <laughs> thought I always thought I was funny to her. The first time I knew I was funny, and so it seems like it would be the first time. The first time I tried it in front of other people who I didn't know. I remember being at a at, a, at like a high school, and so I was funny with my friends, but that was at a high school retreat. Uh, and and with a, and with a, with a with a bunch of the, I don't know why I went my I had two friends in high school who didn't go to the retreat so I'm on a high school sleepaway retreat with like all the people in high school I don't hang out with and there was some sort of like and so there's like the, the girl that I like the guy who doesn't like who's sort of a bully like there's all these people I'm hanging out with that I'm like don't know how to deal with and we did some sort of improv acting game for some reason and it was like and I, it was the kind of thing that I would normally not want to do in front of people I didn't know but I did it. And at some point, I can't tell you what the thing was, but at some point, I was about me asking her for something, and I and I did my impression of Spike Lee from uh, from uh, she's got to have it, please, baby, please, baby, please, baby, like, <laughs> and just sort of went all out, and, I, and just because I thought I was just trying to improv and think of something to do, and everybody exploded in laughter, and it was the first time I was like, wait a minute, random people think can think I'm funny, <laughs> like. like <laughs> Like, <laughs> um, and then what about the first time you performed stand-up comedy? Do you remember where it was, how the, it went? The No Exit Cafe that is no longer there in Rogers Park, uh, Chicago, Illinois, at the at the open mic at the comedy open mic where I think you had to pay ninety nine cents to perform because they didn't think you'd buy anything if you were a comic, <laughs> which they were right. So at the No Exit Cafe, performing in front of like the five, the ten or fifteen comics that were there. And the backs of people playing chess. <laughs> like that was, that was people <laughs> playing chess. This is pre-laptop, so nobody was even on a laptop. And I did five minutes, and uh, there was no joke from that night that would, that ever saw the light of day anywhere. None of them were. <laughs> and and I got off stage, and I had a good time, and I was just happy I got to five minutes. And I got off stage, and the, and somebody said to me the thing that I learned is like sort of like the kiss of death if you're a comedian. You got good stage presence. <laughs> like there was no like that was funny. Yeah, <laughs> good, <laughs> you, you had me, a good joke in there. Yeah, <laughs> I like that one joke, that one bit. Oh, I really, I that no, there wasn't. It was like I just got a lot. <laughs> I got a lot. I get you know. You got you have really good stage presence. So that was my. So I did. I did not kill, and none of those jokes ended up being any in any sort of fusible form anywhere. So if none of those jokes ended up in your act, is there a joke, a first joke that that really did work that you would? you know, repeat and go back to a lot. <laughs> uh, so there's only one joke from, it's not from that far back. The one joke from back then that I used to do all the time that I, I would never do it now. Cause it wouldn't make any sense. Uh, is that, I mean, what do you want? Like the first joke that ever worked? Is yeah. That, the first joke that they worked where you're like, Oh, I think I might have something here. Okay. So <laughs> the, I mean, it's such a like, damn you, Matt. Uh, <laughs> so 
the joke was, and I was young, I was in my twenties, so I was dating or trying to date, and I was the joke was uh, a lot of guys. Something effective. I, I my, it's funny. Dwayne Kennedy could do it verbatim because that's one of those things. Like my friend who's a comic could do it verbatim. But I, so a lot of guys say that their ultimate sexual fantasy is for a woman to say, "I want you to take me home and and do me all night long. I want you to do me all night long." I'm not like that. My ultimate sexual fantasy is for a woman to say, "I want you to take me home and just do your best. Just try real hard. <laughs> if it doesn't work out tonight, you can come back tomorrow. Whatever's good for you." That's yeah, that's a good fantasy. Yeah, I mean, yeah, not a great joke, <laughs> but I performed it better. I was more confident yeah, yeah, in yeah. it. But it was like the joke that I could like that, like I could do, and like that's yeah. a joke. Yeah, you know? that's a, yeah. that's a joke. <laughs> yeah. um, oh, now we're gonna be critical. All right. Yeah. <laughs> no. Um, do you, do you remember, uh, do you have a story about meeting a, a comedy hero of yours the first time you met someone who you really, really looked up to in comedy and, and what, what happened? Like, uh, uh, as a comic or as a kid, I'm trying to think. Was, oh, it could uh, be as a kid. I'm trying to think. Well, I don't even know if I had that as a kid. Uh, uh, I'm trying to think. I mean, it's so weird. It's so weird. Cause it's like, now it's like, I'm trying to think of like who, I mean, I mean, this story's been told before, but you know, when, when I, in 2000, whatever it was, 2010, when I was backstage at the UCB Theater in New York and I had just done my solo show, the W. Kamal Bell Curve, Any Racism, about an hour, and I'm backstage, like, and it was a great show, and I think I had a standing ovation, and I'm standing back there with my, with like, sort of like, whew, that was good. And then Chris Rock walked backstage, like, and that's how I met him, and that's how we started working together, but that was like, like you know, like it's like Santa Claus had just walked in the room. Like it was like because you know he in that, the audience. I mean, he, yeah, he was in the audience. He was, but you didn't he, know he was there, he, or you did? I didn't know. Yeah, I should t- be more thorough with the storytelling. He he had been told that I was good and he should go check me out, and so he had he did he came in you know came in like after it started and stood in the back or whatever he did and he just and watched the show. So and then like. I don't think he'd ever been in UCB in his life. Like, like I don't yeah. think that, and he, <laughs> you're, he, you're the one who got him to UCB. I, I, he good. did credit me with being the one who got him in to, to understand <laughs> that alt comedy was worth a damn. Yes. It exists. Yeah. Yeah. That it, you know, he was like this Patton Oswalt guy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> He's real funny. <laughs> like, yeah. Uh, so, uh, he, but he like, so he came to see the show and then he came backstage after it was over and like you, and it was like, and, and you know, it's funny growing up, Chris was not, you know, I remember seeing Chris on Saturday Night Live, and the documentary I did with him was about this, that I was like, this guy's not as funny as Eddie Murphy. And so I, it wasn't until Bring the Pain that I was like, holy shit. And so that, like, he will always be that, that the guy who created that is who Chris Rock will always be to me. Like, it's just like, and so, and then to be doing work that was really, at that point, if you'd asked me who the comics who inspired me were, it, Chris Rock would have been there way before Cosby at that point. So, and to see, and to have him come backstage and, like, talk to me for a few minutes, he's like, yeah. But in the very understated way that I know Chris now to be offstage, yeah, you were funny. I mean, whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's not an effusive guy. He's not. No, that's like the, you know, and he was like, you know, I think like, he's like, I think like eight people are funny and now you're one of them. You know, I was yeah. just talking. Yeah, and then he's well, like, yeah. I was just talking to When you to put it that way, it sounds pretty good. Yeah. yeah, no, I mean, it was, that's what he said at the time. I'm sure the list has shifted and I may, and I may have fallen off the list. But, uh, but yeah, like it was just very, and then it was also funny to notice how quickly all the comics back there just sort of like clustered around <laughs> like, like people who I, I didn't know because they were yeah, they were going to do like, an oh. improv. Yeah. And how it just became like suddenly everybody's like, this is an audience with Chris Rock. So yeah, uh, yeah that great. was, that was the, the meaning of the comedy uh, hero that, you know, that I will never forget. Um, and then finally, I like to give comedians a chance to shout out things that are making them laugh right now. So what's the last piece of comedy that made you laugh really hard, whether it was a TV show, a movie, a standup, um, something that, that really is making you laugh right now? Okay, I'm gonna be, this is where I'm going to be. I always have to be a little bit of a dad wherever I go. Uh, <laughs> I just think it's, like, it's important to represent the, the dads. Uh, I, there is a TV show that I love right now that I think is top-level comedy and is hysterical, and it is a kid's TV show called Bluey. I knew you were going to say that when you started. That's, that's, I, I can't stop hearing about it. Well, do you, do you have kids? So, yeah, I, I, since, we, since we've last spoken, I, I have a, a baby daughter who's about to be nine months, so I got to get into Bluey, I think. We're a little, we're a little early, but... Oh, this is why I'm excited for you. Kids' content has gotten so much better than we were kids that, like, there's actual good kids' content that you will be happy to watch. And Bluey, I'm like, this is 
like it's clear it's definitely a kid show so it's not like it's like subversive but it is like clearly they're thinking about the parents and like i've watched blue episodes of bluey by myself <laughs> i know I, I gotta check it out i i keep hearing really good things it's like it's like the it's like a the, like the tv show lost you just go see it i can't explain it to you just just start watching it yeah i have to tell you that um i also make the uh banana egg pancakes for my daughter uh, and she loves uh, them so oh, did, oh. <laughs> did were you doing that before you heard my my amazing recipe I, um I, I, ha- I i did i we were doing it before that and i should credit my wife she's the one who who found it but then i heard you talking about it and it only made me you know no, feel that's more a, strongly that's, about it that's a da- especially with a kid that's a super that's a super parent hack so keep yeah, that with you that's a good one um yeah that was on samin's podcast that was Great. Oh yeah, Samina's um, great. <laughs> All right, man. Well, I will. Uh, I'll let you get back to your uh, your hotel room service. I hope it's delicious. <laughs> I know I can't. It's all cold now. Thanks a lot. I'm man. sorry. Yeah, that's my fault. You can blame me for that. But thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. And I just think this, um, as I said, uh, this documentary is a huge achievement, and um, you deserve congratulations, even if you uh, don't think it's appropriate. <laughs> I appreciate that. I accept. <laughs> Um, all right, man. Um, good luck with everything. Thanks. Bye. I said bye like it's a phone call. <laughs> bye. All right. Thank you so much to W. Kamau Bell for going so deep in that conversation. The first episode of We Need to Talk About Cosby is available on Showtime On Demand and streaming now. And the rest of the series will air Sunday nights at 10 p.m. over the next three weeks. If you want to support The Last Laugh, please help us out by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We want as many people to hear this show as possible, and you can help by spreading the word and sharing it with your friends. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Wilstein and at TheDailyBeast.com. And if you're not already, please follow at Last Laugh Pod on Instagram, where you can see photos and videos from all of our episodes and see who is coming up next week on the show. The Last Laugh is distributed by Acast for The Daily Beast, with audio production by Jesse Cannon. Our theme music is by Claude, who you can find on Instagram at claude.mp3. You can find this show every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you next week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.